thank you so much for the reading of God's Word. Uh, it's been great to be with you for Cornerstone Church during this retreat time. And I thought about what would be the fitting message of follow-up from talking about rest as well as despair. I want to deal with the fundamental desire underneath of it all. Um, the root of your desire for rest. At the root of your desire to get out of that deep funk, you call it despair, crush the spirit, depression, you want to be restored. You want to be renewed from that rest, from that despair. And this sermon is saying this, that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is really real, and your desire for renewal and restoration is guaranteed a future for you. It's the greatest news you and I can imagine. As we are <laughs> just singing a moment ago, we will feast in the house of Zion, and we will sing with our hearts restored. That day, on that day when we see him face to face, and that complete renewal and the restoration becomes reality. That really is your deepest heart desire that you don't even know that you are yearning for today. The underneath your desire for rest, the underneath your desire to be well, you are seeking God, is resurrection really real? And if it is real, your desire for restoration and renewal it's guaranteed. It's God-given desire. So let's cultivate it together today. I think it was earlier, um, earlier this year or late last year, I couldn't remember exact timing. I saw this article posted by Bloomberg uh, that said, how to be 18 years old again for only $2 million per year. And I'm like, I guess forever 21 is a real deal. <laughs> they want to be young again. In this article talked about this tech mogul, centi-millionaire named Brian Johnson. He is a 45-year-old man, and he spent $2 million per year by hiring 30 doctors to check his daily pulse, daily blood, sugar level, all that, in order to restore his 45-year-old body to reverse aging to 18-year-old again. First of all, I thought, oh my goodness, that's too much. You have $2 million sitting around? And he's been doing like blood fusion. He's been, I read a follow-up article. He took like blood from his son. I mean, it's been crazy to say the least. But as I was laughing at it, I'm like, okay, it's a desire to be on forever. Desire to be restored and renewed. It's a real deal. And then I get thought about myself. You try youngsters here. I mean, some of you maybe watch YouTube video. There's like some YouTube channels that talk about how really old, like Rust Nintendo or this knife, old motors, like they restore it, renew it, clean it. Or like super nasty car. This guy brings it and cleans it like a spotless car again. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool to bring out this old beauty back again. Why do you love watching like home renovation channel? Wow, this is what home can be. Renewed beauty. It's something within us 
that is fundamental human desire to be restored and renewed, there's innate craving for that. And if Jesus really is risen from the dead and that reality is guaranteed, a resurrection reality is the greatest not only foreshadow, but also assurance of our innate desire for restoration and renewal. My favorite verse in the entire Bible, Cornerstone, is Revelation 21.4, when it says, He will wipe all tears from our eyes, and there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things, for the first order of things has passed away. When Jesus comes back all once again, everything will be new, and we will weep no more, and when we sing face to face, your desire for restoration is realized. And that future hope for Christians is not just an expectation about the future. In a sense, that is the borrowed strength from the future to your present day. Because you know in that future reality, one day everything will be well. Uh, today, you can hold on to it. Just like I quoted a Jewish psychotherapist, Viktor Frankl, the reason why those prison inmates were able to hold on in their concentration camp because they were longing for the day of liberation. And for Christians, there's ultimate day of liberation that is coming. Your innate desire to be renewed and restored is a God-given desire that we can cultivate. Wouldn't that be great that all you know is peace and joy and the calm rest of your heart? Your peace in your heart is not in pieces. Everything is whole, and everything's in peace, and all you know is the calm tranquility and just sing worship of his glorious name. Man, I live for that day. That's going to be one good day that our hope is going to come to realize. And that future is guaranteed if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real deal. So today, let's examine how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything of our lives. It changes three things. It changes our heart, our perspective, and our priority. We'll examine how the reality of Jesus' resurrection changes our heart, and it changes our perspective, and changes our priority. It gives us new command, a new priority of life. So first, how it changes our heart. We'll look at this John chapter 20 that we studied. The first encounters of reason Jesus comforts our troubled heart. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus, encounters of risen Jesus, comforts our troubled heart. Uh, look, verse 11, a wise Mary crying out there, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, as she stood to look into the tomb, verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's crying here because she believes that somebody has taken the Lord's body away. She may believe perhaps Joseph of Arimathea has taken Jesus' body away. Uh, she may believe well, maybe Roman soldiers, they took Jesus' body away. Why is she weeping and grieving? Uh, because her, she loved Jesus like nobody. In the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that Mary Magdalene loved Jesus so much she has firsthand witnessed the power of Jesus as he cast out demon in her. 
And she has witnessed how Jesus changed her heart completely, yet now her grief of Jesus' death turned into complete anxiousness and panic. You have taken my love away. Where have you taken her? In one sense, it's very moving that Mary loved him so much that even unto death she's seeking after him. Yet on the another side, even to Mary, who loved Jesus, who witnessed the power of Jesus firsthand in her life, still the resurrection reality was not possibility to her. She's not considered, oh, Jesus, my, my, perhaps as he has prophesied, is risen from the dead. That is not in her consideration. Not only for Mary, look verse 19 this time, disciples this time. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples war for fear of the Jews. While marriage having panic attack, it could give sorrow and grief and anxiousness. At least she was grieving because she loved Jesus. Here, disciples are panicking for the fear of their own life. Their captain of their movement, Jesus' movement, has been vanished at the crucifixion, but they are panicking, oh, maybe Jewish leader is going to come and kill us now. Our movement has failed. Now what's the lot of our lives? At least marriage panic or grief has to do with her love for the Lord. Disciples panic here was the love of their own life. Cornerstone, what do we learn for that? Without really embracing the reality of Jesus' resurrection, fear and anxiousness is a human default. If Jesus is really never risen from the dead, if this is all there is, there's no resurrection, there's no renewal, if Jesus is not coming back, if this is all there is, he did not conquer the death, then of course when life is not going well, I'll panic. Because we cannot grieve with hope. We grieve with grief. There's no hope of restoration and renewal if this is all there is. There's famous poet, perhaps his poem got made popular by the movie Interstellar, directed by Christopher Nolan. In that movie, coached the poet Dylan Thomas, actually, who, Welsh poet, who grew up in a Christian home, but later really rejected Christianity. He says this, do not put gentle into the good night. Raise, raise against the dime of the light. Without the resurrection reality, raise, panic, grief, anxiousness, that's all there is. There is only grieving without hope. Here, both and disciples are experiencing that because they couldn't fathom the possibility of resurrection of Jesus. Even though they've heard it so many times, they're like, it, that was not even their consideration. We might just look at it, oh, but Jen, we've seen risen Jesus, we have Bible, we are not like that. You're talking to this to non-believers, right? No, I'm not actually, I'm talking to you, church, as well. We know intellectually that Jesus is risen. So many times we live as if resurrection is not reality. We live as if this is all there is. Why do you obsess over every single penny of your life? Do you think I must make it? I must be comfortable? I must be secure in my life? I must prove my existence, my worthiness by working hard? This is all there is. Why is your heart constantly panicking? When your reputation is on the line, oh no, what are they going to think about me? Because you functionally do not believe the resurrection 
which guarantees restoration and renewal. It's not reality in your heart. Theologically, you believe that, but it is not operational, functional in your life. So every single panic of your life, whether it has to do the money, whether it has to do with your reputation, your honor, whether it has to do with the uncertain future, your heart's constantly panic. Either you're anxious, or either you explode and raise, raise. How do you overcome that, church? One, first, you have to just not know the resurrection of Jesus. You, you don't have to, you don't just know him intellectually, but you have to be known by him by your name. A naming in the Old Testament, New Testament, is a very significant meaning. Like in the Old Testament, when Jacob wrestled with God, after all that his heart has been changed, he gets the new name of Israel. Here also in this account, if you carefully look at it first a few verses, Mary sees Jesus, but she doesn't see Jesus. Do you realize in verse 13, they said to angel of the Lord, why are you weeping? He said to them, and having said this, they are like, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. And having said it, she turned around, and Jesus was there. And even Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She sees Jesus, but she said, supposing him to be a gardener. Mary sees Jesus, but she doesn't know that's Jesus. But what, what's the kind of tipping point for Mary? What does Jesus do? When Jesus says to her, verse 16, Mary, when Jesus calls her by her personal name, also Mary's eyes are open. And Mary sees her, Rabboni, and she begins to hug him. You are the Jesus that I've been looking for. Where have you been? If you have been following Jesus for a long time, church, you might assume that this is just for a non-believer who only knows intellectually Jesus. But how many times do you know Jesus, but you live as if reality of Jesus is not a reality? You live as if all there is. Underneath your restlessness, underneath your desire, your despair and all that, the resurrection reality of Jesus the restoration that he guarantees with a restoration through his resurrection is not operational underneath. That is what is happening today. And what is the words of Jesus in our panic when we functionally don't realize that he's really risen from the dead? Look verse 19, what does it say? Second half, this time is to disciples. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. But when he said this, he showed them his hands, his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Um, Do you see that in verse 19, verse 21, verse 26, he repeats the greeting over and over and over again, peace be with you? What does that mean? Sure, peace be with you was normal, customary greeting at the time. He preached them like, peace be with you. But at the same time, it was not just a normal greeting, nor it was just command, you better have peace. But no, it's a sign of comfort. Peace be with you. Why are you afraid? I am present with you. Like when you tell your children, don't worry about it. When you tell your beloved spouse, don't worry about it. What do you mean by it? Is that just like, hey, don't worry about it. You just say that or it's like, don't you dare to worry about it. This is my command. So what you're trying to say, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. 
It's a sign of assurance and of comfort. And here, to the restless and anxious heart, Jesus appears and tells them, hey, it's going to be okay because I am risen. Church, what are you so restless about today? Perhaps you are like Mary. You are great and anxious because your love has been taken away. I don't know what your loves are today. Um, perhaps your love of certain future that you desperately dreamt about. Perhaps that's been robbed. You loved it so much. You desperately wanted the future to come to fruition. You invested your life in it. It seems like it's been vanished. Or perhaps uh, you're like disciples. You're worried about your circumstances. They are fear for their life. You're like, you got no idea my uncertain future. My job's on the line. My reputation's on the line. My security's on the line. I don't even know the direction of life. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I am fearful. Perhaps, or you're like Thomas that we are about to see. Uh, you're just so restless because I'm not even sure this whole Jesus thing is true. I, I come to church. Church is a great thing. But I'm not skeptical about that. Or perhaps... <laughs> You know what? Jesus appears to Peter in chapter 21 as well. What Jesus do each time Jesus appears to these people? Jesus comforts each of them. Jesus comforts Mary's grieving heart. Jesus comforts disciples' fearful heart. Jesus comforts Peter's doubting, Thomas' doubting heart. And Jesus comforts Peter's guilt-ridden heart. Perhaps you're like, some of us are like Peter, perhaps. After he said, I'll never deny you. Three times, miserably fails Jesus. Jesus appears to Peter and says, do you love me? Three times and restores Peter. Each time Jesus appears. Now, what is that for you, perhaps? If you're like Peter, there's something that constantly nags in your heart. You just cannot shake it off. The guilt-ridden conscience, because you're constantly beholding your sin. When Scripture clearly tells us, for those who are in Christ, there is no more condemnation. Because all you see is within yourself. You just live with a guilt-ridden conscience with a hunched back. I am nobody. I'm not even worthy. Can Jesus ever forgive me? Regardless which state you're in, see how every time Jesus appears, he comforts those. The resurrection of Jesus' reality comforts Mary's grieving heart, disciples' fearful heart, Thomas' doubting heart, Peter's guilt-ridden heart. The rest, resurrection of Jesus is the greatest guarantee of the restoration of your heart. I love Jesus for that reason to the church. I am so glad I'm not Jesus. What I mean by that, I mean, can you imagine? Jesus, the greatest injustice was done to him just three days ago. If I were Jesus, I appeared to disciples and Peter's and Mary's, I'd be like, look at me. I told you I was innocent all this time. I'll be busy defending my fragile ego. I told you I was innocent. Look at me, I'm fine. See, I am God. I told you about it. There's no mention of that. Nobody believed that what he was saying was true. But Jesus appeared busy taking care of Mary's craving heart, Thomas' disciples, Peter's. Every time he touches, everybody's heart is restored. Church, if resurrection is real, and if you really encounter Jesus, he will comfort your troubled heart. What is your troubled heart today? That's the one that I'm asking today. Can, is, think in light of the gospel. If Jesus is really risen, 
what I'm worried about. Let's say I'm so worried about my money right now is the issue. If resurrection of Jesus is the real deal, and can I rest my uncertain future about financial insecurity? I think the answer is yes. You may suffer in a while, but when he comes back, everything will be well. And that is our guaranteed eternity. Perhaps there is a Lord of the Ring fans out there or not, whether you have seen the movie or you have not. At the very end of the great battle, all that is over, Sam Gamzee thought he's dead and he passed out and he wakes up and he thought they've lost the battle. And they just thought that this is all over. He thought their hero Gandalf was dead. And he thought, he's like, eh, it's all been, what have I done? He wakes up and then realized that it's okay. And he sees Gandalf. And then Sam Gamzee looks at Gandalf and says, hey Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? You know what the Christian resounding answer is? Yes. If Jesus is really risen, everything sad is going to come untrue. This is what I said. Sam Gamzee asked Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? And Gandalf responds by saying, the great shadow has departed. He said, he laughed, and the sound was like music. One day when Jesus restores all things again, we will weep no more, and there will be consolation of all your sorrow and pain that you've experienced. So first, if Jesus is really risen, he comforts our troubled heart. Second point, the encounters of risen Jesus transforms our perspective of life. What I mean by that, did you notice each time? Sure, Mary could have looked for Jesus for her lifetime and never found him. It was Mary only was able to see Jesus until Jesus called her by name, verse 15 through 17. Mary, and Mary recognized it, right? In verse 21, what happens in verse 21? In the end, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. It's in the end, Jesus appearing to them. In the end, all the restoration, renewal, calling Mary by her name, visiting disciples, restoring Thomas, restoring Peter, it happens at the appearing, at the initiative of Jesus Christ. And this is how gospel works as well. This is what he has done, not how much we seek after him. That will change your perspective. You know when I get so discouraged, when I feel like, God, can I really change? I've tried so hard. There are sins that I just cannot shake off. But God, I've tried so hard. I don't know whether I can change. But as much as you try, if you're ever victorious, know that if you ever change, it's the work of the Lord. And maybe to some of you, I shared some of my marriage story, how I got to know Kyla, how I screwed everything up, how I thought I can never change but how God completely changed my heart and allowed Kyla to forgive me, and we are married now. It's a, it's, it's a story of how gospel can change my stubborn heart. If Jesus is really risen and he takes initiative to me for his love, he can change you too. Do you really believe that, or did you believe that this life is all up to you, what you must make of? I don't know who articulated this better than one of my, my dissertation. I wrote about this Welsh preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was the pastor in England, uh, Westminster Chapel, and he articulated the gospel. It's the word euangelion, it means good news, 
But so many of us take the gospel of good news as a good advice. And he gives this fascinating illustration that I've never forgotten. Uh, in the times of Jesus, when the enemies attacked the border, what kings do? They send the troops to the borders to defend the army against invasion. And if the war is victorious, king will send a messenger to the civilians in the city. And messenger will come and say, hey, citizens, we are victorious. You can rest. You can live joyfully in gratefulness. For we have fought the battle on your behalf and we have been victorious. That's what gospel is. However, if the king is defending their army and fighting the battle, but actually battle is losing. Enemies are about to invade. King will not send a messenger, but king will instead send a war advisor. War advisor will come to the city and say, citizens, embrace yourself. You must fight for battle yourself for your life. Your salvation of your life, redemption, depends on how well you can fight and embrace, live for yourself. That's a heaven and hell difference. Both will galvanize into action, right? First to action, messenger, you're being victorious. You are galvanized to live joyfully unto greatness. Man, I'm victorious. I can live my life. Thank you for saving me. That's what Christianity is all about. But so many of us live as if God has sent us war advisor instead of good messenger. We're like, I must fight for myself. I must prove my dignity. I must prove my worthiness. We desperately defend our worthiness as if it is something to be achieved, not the given. How many times do you live, church, as if you're like, I must do it, I must prove myself, I must prove my existence. Think with you, let's think very practically. Let's say there's a two person at work, one person work because he's so fearful that he's gonna get let go in a moment. Another person work because he's so grateful that he has a job. In a sense, both you work really hard, right? In short term, one, oh man, before I get fired, I must prove how great I am. I'm gonna work my butt off. I got this. I'm gonna work really hard. Another way, work hard because they love the job. They are so grateful. In short term, both you work very hard, but in the long run, this will only lead to burnout. This will only make you bitter. While this one, there's tranquility, calmness, and there's something very attractive about that verse, about that reality that I have this job and I'm grateful that God has given this role to me. So now, in a sense, this is what God has done. If your salvation is up to the Lord, what Jesus Christ has done, Cornerstone, why are you so restless today? Why do you live as if Jesus is not risen from the dead? Why do you live as if your life is up to you to completely prove? Because functionally, you do not believe that Jesus is risen. And functionally, you do not believe that one day he's going to come and make everything new again. So how do you then grow in this perspective? In a sense, it can be really offensive when you really think about it, especially in our culture. You must do your hard working to prove your existence. You know, are you saying that there's nothing I can do? That's really offensive. 
But if you are there, you're like, what am I supposed to do? I feel like my heart is restless. I just don't know what to do. And there's nothing I can do about that. How do you move from that kind of question to really believe that the gospel reality is guaranteed future for you? Well, come and see the reality of Jesus for yourself. Look how Jesus appears to Thomas this time. When you look at it, um, he says, Thomas is what this is, says in verse 25, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Uh, perhaps some of you guys are saying, Man, but you know, I'm not even sure whether I really believe the resurrection of Jesus is real. I mean, I believe it. Church has been telling it throughout all my life. But is that really the reality? And what does Jesus do here? Jesus tells Thomas, he put his finger. Jesus invites you to feel him and touch him and sense him. He opens his arm. Hey, this is the name arm. Come and touch me. Now, in our church circle, Thomas gets the worst reputation. Like, how do you know Thomas is doubting Thomas? But I actually think he's a very honest man. <laughs> Nobody really believes the resurrection is reality, actually. Why is Mary panicking? Why is disciple panicking? But nobody really believed that Jesus was risen initially. But Thomas, at least the integrity asked, Jesus, are you really risen? I have seen to believe myself. And Jesus does not confront him. And Jesus invites him, come and see for yourself whether I'm really risen Savior. For some of you who are doubting, for some of you who are really not sure whether this is reality, I've been talking each point I brought about the rest and the disappearing in the end, I brought it to the cross each time. That because Jesus cried out, it is finished, you can have rest in this, really rest in your heart. Because Jesus after cosmic darkness, you can find hope in the middle of darkness. And you are saying, I get that, but really, if you're in there, it's okay. Come to Jesus just as you are with your question. Constantly wrestle with him. Christianity invites you for that. Don't pretend that, oh yeah, yes, I believe. But when the rubber meets the road, you will panic just like Mary and disciples and in the end. Be like Thomas, come. But don't come to Jesus just to question him. But question to really believe. In Bible, there's people that who just question, to question Jesus. Those people are called the Pharisees. I just want to question you because I'm better than you. Question to believe. And you know what happens in the end? As Jesus tells Thomas to touch me and feel me, what does Jesus tell Thomas to do in verse 28? Thomas answered, we don't know whether Thomas actually really touched Jesus or not. At some point, Thomas drops all the condition. He proclaims, my Lord and my God. You know what that means? At some point, Thomas ceases to see himself. He sees Jesus and his life is fundamentally changed. He drops all the if only and what if, and he sees Jesus, and then he realizes that he's the savior uh, that he has been looking for. Do you realize that when you just look at yourself, cornerstone, introspection is a good thing? Your doubtful heart, your grieving heart, it's a human emotion are all good things. But if you really want to embrace the reality of Jesus, at some point you need to cease to see yourself and cease to see Jesus. Sometimes the hindrance to coming to really faith, the saving faith, is that you are too focused on your flaws and sins. Why do we constantly live in the guilt-ridden conscience? I mean, 
I pastor a church predominantly Anglo. I think 80% of my congregation are Anglo in my church. Um, one thing saying, whether you're Asian or Anglo, all that, we are so good at, we are the biggest critics of our soul. We're so good at just looking at ourselves that actually hinders you from really looking at Jesus. That all you feel is condemnation and shame. But at some point, you need to cease to look at yourself and look at Jesus. Like, look at Mary, what happens. Mary Magdalene, verse 18, went and announced to the disciple, I have seen the Lord. Disciples, verse 20, when he said this, he showed them his hand and his side, and disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 28, Thomas, 28, Thomas answered, my Lord and my God, if you only look at yourself, of course your default is inadequacy. I, when I just look at myself, all I see is my inadequacy. I'm not enough, I am nobody. When I look at myself, all I feel is panic, because I know I'm not in control of my life, but at some point, would you look at Jesus? That would change the perspective of your life. Because the one you witness in your life now is no longer about how good you are or what Jesus has done for you. And Thomas has been fundamentally changed after that. How do I know that? <coughs> Historian tells us that Thomas actually became first missionary to India after this. And he died as a martyr. After he was, we call him just doubting Thomas. He's nobody. No. He asked honest intellectual question. Sees Jesus and changed and go become a proclaimer of good news, Jesus Christ. So this life, it's Jesus' initiative that he has saved you. It's not up to you to live. That will change your perspective. First, encounters of risen Jesus comforts your troubled heart, whether it be fearful, grieving, anxious, or doubtful, guilt-ridden heart. Second, encounters of risen Jesus will change your perspective. Because it is not you who fought the battle to save yourself, but it is Jesus Christ. He fought the cosmic battle for you to save your soul. And thirdly, now, encounters of risen Jesus will command new priority. Now, read verse 17 and 18 once again. When you see that, something very odd is happening. I don't know whether you noticed that. Like, we just look at Thomas. Jesus invited Thomas, hey, come and touch me and feel me. But here, when Mary's trying to touch Jesus, Jesus said, don't touch me. Don't cling on to me. And look at verse 7. Jesus said, do not cling on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Now, why Jesus does that? I mean, is Jesus discriminating against a woman here? He tells Thomas, come and touch me and feel me. Mary, don't you dare to touch me. No, not at all. Is Mary, I mean, is Jesus being misogynistic here? It can be because at the end, I mean, the people, three people that God has chosen to witness the resurrection of Jesus were three women, not three men. I mean, that's, I'm sure that can be, it's significant even in nowadays. Back then, that was incredibly important because woman's opinion at the time was not counted as a valid opinion in the court. So what woman had seen or heard were not counted as a valid opinion. So if you were to invent any religion, sort of like that, you'd never choose three women as a witness. But Jesus chose Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, as a first witness of Jesus' resurrection. And it is Jesus tells the three, Mary, the woman first, go to hell that I am risen. So it cannot be that Jesus does not love Mary. But what is Jesus telling Mary? 
because he knows how much Mary has loved him. He saw her grieving heart. But now what Jesus is telling Mary is, you've seen the Lord. Now I command you, you have a new priority of life. Go tell others about how I changed your life. Cornerstone, if Jesus has changed your life, now your life is not your own to live. Will you share the love of Jesus to others? This precious message of the gospel is too precious just to hoard. If you have seen the Lord, if this is your testimony, go and share. Encounters of risen Jesus commands a brand new priority of your life. Do not just cling on to Jesus as if gospel is for you and you only. If you've been saved vertically by what Jesus Christ has done, in gratefulness, begin to share with others. I mean, as I came to your retreat, as I got to see your church, what a beautiful story. So many of you got to know Jesus. So many of you got to meet one another. The wonderful gospel message is worthy of sharing how gospel has changed you. So don't just hoard this precious gospel message to yourself. But encounters you've written in Jesus, command a new priority. Cease to look at just your anxious heart. Cease to look at just your troubled heart, grieving heart. Now, Jesus, I have a new priority to tell others about Jesus Christ. I want to challenge all of us today. I'll end by a sermon that Elizabeth Elliot, whom I quoted either first sermon or second sermon. She's a prolific writer, professor, but probably she's most well-known as the wife of Jim Elliot, who died uh, as a missionary to Ecuador tribe. Um, he could have defended himself, Jim Elliot, but he got mercilessly killed. He did not fight back, but later Elizabeth Elliot even went back to the tribe who killed his husband, and she gave her life and ministering there and came back to talk here and all that. In her sermon, The Glory of God's Will, that she preached in 1976, it goes way back, 1976 in Urbana. Uh, this is a lengthy quote, but what I'm trying to say, how it encounters a risen Jesus commands new priority, and that it's our job that Jesus calls us to share the goodness of Jesus Christ. I don't think I can articulate as well as she does. So let me read what she says here. Elizabeth Elias says, Paul told us this. He said, we have shared his death. We are weapons of good for his own purposes. I say to you, for his sake, first of all, obey him. For your own sake, if you lose your life, remember he promised you would find it. There's a spiritual principle here. The same one that went into operation when Jesus went to the cross. The offering of, of ourselves, our bodies, our wills, our plans, our deepest heart's desires to God is the laying down of our lives for the life of the world. This is the mystery of sacrifice. There is no calculating where it will end. This is what I mean by transformation, she says. The bitter water, the wilderness, the storm, the cross are changed to sweetness, peace, and life 
out of death. God wills to transform all loss into gain, all shadow into radiance. I know he wants to give you beauty for ashes. He's given me the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Jim Elliot and his four companions believed that the world passed away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Church, have you seen the risen Lord? And tell others, I have seen the risen Lord. And share the good news. Revival is not far away. It can start from your own heart, your own church. If you have seen the Lord, now let us go tell about the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us.